Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious name of your Son, your only Son, your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us this day as you have already graced us with marvelous sunshine and warmth. Give us peace as we sometimes struggle with conflict from one place or another, one avenue or one street. Bring to us calmness in our heart. Let us be like Jesus, understanding that we are not in charge of this world, but you are. You are the one Lord, the one Savior. Make these words your words, Lord. Let the Holy Spirit pull them from my heart and deliver them as you would have them be. And let those hear the words that you have meant for them. We know each one of us receives a special message from you, and we ask that you bless that message. Let us receive it in humbleness and respect honestly take it back out into the world as we serve and love you with all our heart, mind, and soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now most of you know this is my first go around, but fortunately for you, this won't be the first time I've tried to do this sermon today. <laughs> Eight o'clock was the first subjects. And, uh, and they were they were marvelous. They were very silent. <laughs> so I take that as a good sign, as I think God intended it to be. So good. So today is the Gospel of St. Luke, and he is giving us a parable. A parable that Jesus tells us about a vineyard. And I love a good story, don't you? I love parables. And most of, most of all, we find parables in the New Testament really contained within the three Gospels. They call them the synoptic Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And the reason for it is they're pretty concise, short stories, but they have many of the same, same words and sentences and presentation. So there is just enough variation with some parables, if they're not unique to one of the writers, to actually fill in some of the blanks you may have. So I would encourage you to go to the parable of the, of the uh, wicked tenants, or husbandsmen, there's all kinds of different translations, and check out Mark and Matthew and see what it fills in that perhaps Luke didn't tell us today. We all remember that Luke was a physician and he just likes to keep it on the short and narrow, give them the facts, let them know what they need to know, and bonk him on the head and say, go and proclaim the good news of the Lord. So that's what we have today. So the vineyard, it's a different kind of story, this parable. It's not calling us to repent or be better worshipers of God or do things this way or, or some kind of change in our heart. It's really meant not for us. It is, but it's not. It's meant for the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sadducees and for the elders, for the Sahedrin group, because this isn't taking place two weeks before Christ dies on the cross. This is about Tuesday of Holy Week. 
And somehow God has put us right there in the middle of Holy Week and we didn't even see him. We didn't see Christ come in on the donkey to the praise and cheering of the crowds. As the crowds went wild, the King of the Jews, our Lord, our Savior, the Messiah. No, we just skipped ahead two days from that Sunday and we're in the middle of a very commonplace. We're not at home, we're not on the road, we're in the temple. And the, and the chief religious elders and chief priests know that this person, this person born in Nazareth has come in to rock the boat. I've got a good thing going, they tell me. I collect all kinds of money just for walking out and saying, this is the law, you broke it, give me money. This is, this is our worship today, make sure you give and then some. This is my property because I'm worth it. That's the message where it's going to. This is the wake up call that the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders are all ready to take out Jesus. But they know they can't do that in the dead of night because he's surrounded by the people. The people who are cheering and waving palms and saying, Hallelujah, I'm saved. I'm free at last. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief elders are having none of this. So this, this really is a parable story for them to understand because they're going to make this whole day one giant wind-up until that pitch is thrown and the iron is hot and they will remove this Messiah before the week is over. So how do we do that? We need to turn the people away from loving this guy. If they believe he's the Messiah, they're going to be very protective of him. If he's their king, they know he's going to save them from the Romans. And also these guys that are doing nothing but sticking their hand in one pocket and the other and taking out what they want. But Jesus is too smart for that. He knows what's coming. He knows that he's going to be following his father's will. And his father is going to help him through this Tuesday as he prepares to move down the road in the path to where he finally will say it is finished. So this, this gospel is totally different because gospels are used to reveal the mystery of God's kingdom, to stimulate reflection on sin, and it's usually it's our sin, not their sin, and it's to call people to repent and produce an opposite action that they have been producing, a wrong-headed action. So we remember why Jesus used parables for two reasons, really. One, he hid the information about his kingdom and his ways and his path from all these religious leaders, from all the governors. He didn't want them to know what his plans were. So he would talk in parables and God hid the message that was being delivered to those who would follow Jesus. So they were ignorant for a very long time. And also to give a more complete understanding of what the story really meant to all those who were following Jesus or who are becoming followers of Jesus. It was a great system. We could use that today. 
Maybe not. <laughs> so we understand the reasons why Jesus used parables. He wanted his followers and new believers to know about the kingdom and how to get there. And he didn't want the others to get in the way, to be an obstacle to their, to their salvation. So in the gospel today, we hear the parable of the wicked tenants, which is really an analogy. And all of a sudden, the scribes and chief priests and elders understand what Jesus is saying. They catch his drift. They're ready to go. And the first thing that is, is amazing to them is let's see how we turn the people away from him. The first thing we'll start today, and we'll go down, everybody gets a question, so it looks like it's coming from the crowd, the spies, all the movements going on. And so the first thing they do today is to try to block Jesus from his mission. And as Luke says in chapter 19, verses 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, there's plenty of lost, and even all the religious leaders of the temple and the city. So, Jesus enters the temple that morning, and he's immediately confronted by one of these characters. And he calls out and says, I have a question for you. We'd like you to answer. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Oops, sorry. It is. It is written. Jesus told the people there before he got the question, my house shall be a house of prayer. It's made by a den of robbers. Now right there, that pricks up their ears. Their antennas are now up. Jesus is ready for us. So the chief priests are there and said, we have a question for you. And Jesus says, I'll answer your question after you answer mine. I'm happy to do so because I'm not afraid. He shouldn't. He's got thousands of followers around and these few scribes and elders are feeling a bit intimidated. So this is a watershed day for these Sadducees and elders and priests. So they try unsuccessfully to challenge him about whose authority do you sit here in the temple and preach and teach and tell us about the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you answer my question first. And so he, he asked them, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from man? And so the little group of spies huddled together and said, oh, macro, how are we gonna answer this? If we say it's from heaven, we should be believing John the Baptist's words about baptism and about entering into this kingdom. And if we say it was from man, we're gonna be in trouble with the people because they, they revere John the Baptist because they consider him a prophet. They're really between a rock and a hard place. Or as they used to say in ancient days, you're between a cornerstone and death to God. That's pretty serious. So they said, well, we don't know. We, we have no understanding of what, what your question is, but, but answer our question. And he, and he says, you are very foolish people. If you're not gonna answer my question, I don't have time to answer yours. 
very condescendingly. And this is when he launches into this parable of the wicked tenants. Now, if you may have guessed by now, the wicked tenants aren't following Christ. They're not following anybody. These are represented as, as the country and the state of Israel. And the owner of the vineyard is God. God has said, come, I have blessed this vineyard for you. It is ready to be cared for and to bear fruit. Do so and just give me what you consider to be a fair share of the fruit you have. He's talking to the priest and those others who are supposed to be leading and shepherding the flock of Jews and growing fruit for God's kingdom to create more disciples and other things. And yet that's not what happens. It's not what happens at all. So as Jesus launches into this, his voice and tenor start to change. He's becoming more harsh, more stern. He's speaking in ever more clear terms. He wants to make sure these people don't misunderstand him in any way. And this is just the beginning of Tuesday. So he talks about the vineyard, and the vineyard comes up in many places. It's a wonderful sign of blessings and prosperity throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it's really first used in, the, in, the, uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, where he talks about the vineyard. And he says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. That's how we know it's God's. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. I'm making this as easy as possible for you guys. He dug in and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it to help guard. That's not in Luke's gospel, but it is in the others. And now, he finishes up, oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard because it wasn't producing great ripe grapes ready to be plucked and eaten or made into a wonderful wine. It was turned into wild grapes. Wild grapes. Something's wrong here. And he finishes, what more was there to do for my vineyard? When I looked to it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the vineyard starts out to be something special. Does that remind you of any other vineyard or garden you might have run into, a perfect garden, Garden of Eden, where God's perfect creations were placed in the middle of a garden. And he said it was good. It was very good until it wasn't. So the people of God, especially those that were in Jerusalem, are seen as being the vineyard. And in the last verse of the gospel today, 
Jesus makes it very clear. And when he says the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They knew what Jesus was talking about. So what happens? Who are these servants that came in then because God had left? I, I trust you. I love you, my people. Build, be fruitful, and multiply. Bring the good news of my kingdom out into the world. And they sent the first servant to collect the first harvest as the time when the grapes was ripe, were ready. So they sent the servants. Who were the servants of God? All throughout the Old Testament, he didn't have priests running around and bishops blessing here and there and telling everybody this is how it's supposed to be. He sent prophets when they went astray. The prophets came to bring God's word to them, to deliver his message, to bring correction or encouragement, to exhort them to be strong and steadfast. Stay on the path of the Lord. Don't deviate. And what did the Jews do? They mocked them. They beat them up. They ignored them. They belittled them. So in this parable, they send one of the first servant one of the prophets, and he gets beat up a little bit and then kicked out with nothing to show for him. And then a little bit later, another prophet goes in. God had a lot of prophets back then. And the same thing happened, only a little worse. The scribes and everyone, the tenants, were upset and because they didn't want to see any more prophets or servants showing up for their bounty that they had said they would give the Lord, they beat him up a little bit more. And if you get into Matthew and Mark, you'll see it's actually probably more than just one or two. It's several. And each time the pain they inflict on these servants is greater to send a message back to the owner, to God. And then the third servant comes in. God is a very trusting and patient God. And he goes in, and now they not only belittle him and beat up on him and hurt him, but they torture him. They put such severe pain into the servants and the prophets, even unto death, that their message is clear. We don't want any part of it. This is our property. It's ours now. So God, ever patient, sends his only beloved son. The owner sends his only beloved son, hoping that these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and elders will take some compassion, will stop and say, what we've been doing is wrong. We, we really needed to be caring for these grapes, but we didn't. And we need to fess up. But in olden days, if there was no heir to the property, then whoever was tending the property now owned it. And they knew that if they killed the son, the property was going to be theirs. How wicked could you be? So God so loved his people and wanted so much for them that he 
sent his only son into the vineyard to a certain death, and Jesus knew it was coming. Just as he knew at the end of the week he would be on the cross once and for all to save us. So it's not like we're a landlord of the place and we don't understand what our obligations are to the owner who leases it out of the goodness of our heart lets us take over from a, from a, from a sorry situation. So, but this isn't the first time God has been patient with his, with his, with his, uh, with his people. I mean, go back to Egypt when God got Moses to take them out of Egypt. And every time they came up to water, he made it dry land so that they could walk on it. And what happened at the first stop? Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and the people build an idol of gold so that they have something to see and to touch because that's what they're used to. If I can see you and feel you, touch you and smell you, then you must be real and you must be the truth. And for those of us that saw the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, we know what happened to them. Not sure that's exactly how God did it, but he had his ways. And so God just didn't say, all right, the heck with you Jews. I gave you a chance, you were to be my chosen people. No, he said, I love you. I promised you that I would always be with you. Not all of you, but with you. He always left a remnant that he could love and build up and to serve him. So the people continue to go, what does God do to punish them? He sticks them in the wilderness for 40 years. Goodbye, see you at the other end. But he, he doesn't really leave. He's there to help, and they're starving. They, he drops manna in on them. He finds ways to provide water so they have food and substance and liquids. And they come, and they come, and they come. Well, what's going on at that time? If you remember from last Sunday's reading of Joshua, God is talking about bringing the people through the wilderness and crossing into the Jordan and picking up the 12 stones to, to represent the 12 tribes. And he's got this dry land they're coming across. And he goes up to, to, up to, to, uh, to Joshua and, and says, get, get knives of flint and circumcise all the men. Why? Because during that 40 years in the wilderness, God made sure all those people who were not for God, who were men of war, who couldn't stand someone else being in charge, all those men died over those 40 years. There was not one left when they crossed the Jordan into the, the promised land of Canaan. And that's why he recircumcised to give the sign of God's grace on them, because these were all new men who were born in the wilderness, not during the escape from Egypt and all that, that happened at that time. So God is a forgiving God, he's patient, but he finds a way to make us listen and hear. So it becomes obvious that this vineyard now is in real trouble. That means the scribes are finally getting it. That means 
Whoa, he's trying to rise up a rebellion against us. And what are we going to do? We've already gotten rid of his servants. We've gotten rid of his son. If he's really God, what kind of punishment is he going to wreak on us? And that's when you get the word and, and hear about the stone, the capstone, the cornerstone is another term. Cornerstone, you may remember, is the big stone in the corner holding up is the foundation of a building. Well, the capstone is another part, and you can't see it where the cross is there, but capstone is sort of angled on two bevels. So you've got two sides of an archway, and the only way to stabilize that is to lay in a capstone on the side. And the reason why I like that image is because now God is not forsaking the Jews forever, but he is putting them on hold in his own way. So they're one half of this arch, but he's opened up a new, a new opportunity to all the world, to all the Gentiles. They have heard of this magnificent Christ, this Messiah who will free them from their bonds of slavery, who will free them from the Romans, who will free them from oppression, and that is us. And that's why I like this visual because there's Christ, the capstone, holding the two together. As he gets ready to raise and move towards his death and ascension, and then Pentecost, he is right there in the middle. Jews and Christians alike will one day be gathered in their kingdom. So, where does that leave us? The stone the builders rejected became the capstone which is in Psalm 118. When Peter preached to the Jewish leaders in Acts a little bit later, he quoted this Psalm 118. He wanted to show them that Jesus is the rejected stone whom God has made as a cornerstone for our salvation. They, the Jewish leaders, rejected Jesus, but God not only accepted him, but put him in a position of the highest honor. So St. Peter really wanted to drive this point home to those that were listening to him, these new believers. And he came to this powerful conclusion that is God's promise. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. These words are totally exclusive. There is no other. There is no other hope, no other way, and no other name than the name of Jesus. If we are to be saved, we must come to God in God's way, or we won't come at all. Amen. Amen.